Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hi, I'm Jeff Atkin, partner at Foley and Lardner. And if you're looking for the best info and tips on how to develop and sell solar in Latin America, look no further. Welcome to Suncast with my friend, Nico Johnson. Hey there, and welcome to episode nine of Suncast, the only podcast dedicated to solar professionals in Latin America. My name is Nico Johnson, and as always, I'm so grateful you're joining me today for our weekly conversation with solar industry experts and thought leaders. I draw from my own personal experience in Latin America over the last decade working in solar, digging up the timeless truths and lessons learned along the path with some of the most experienced folks in the biz. And I believe that personal connections coupled with in-depth market data is the most effective way to stay ahead of the trends. Whether you're listening on your commute, your lunch break, or sneaking it in over the weekend, it's my hope that this show helps you get the tools, insights, and resources you need to lead the solar revolution in Latin America, the fastest growing solar market in the world. You see, I want you to learn from the success of those who've gone before you. I'll try to tease out details on market development, as well as tips to improve your approach no matter what market you're in. And as always, I'm so grateful for your feedback. Thanks so much to those of you who reach out every week to comment on the show, provide input, constructive criticism. Everything is welcome. Very special shout out this week to my new friends Patricia Tato and Santiago Barcon down in Mexico who brightened my week last week by organizing an impromptu gathering of Suncast fans during the GTM Mexico Summit. It's always great to meet new people and hear how Suncast is helping you along your journey. I hope we can collaborate in interesting ways, and I encourage any of you to feel free, please, to reach out if you'd like to meet up during one of these regional events. You can shoot me an email, nico at mysuncast.com, drop a line on the website, tweet me at Nico Mayo, N-I-C-O-M-E-O, and especially as usual, you can reach out on LinkedIn. I'm always listening and actively incorporating your feedback into the show. I apologize that we have had a rather long gap. I have been traveling. I have also just been completely under the weather every time I've sat down to try and record a new episode, uh, well, to edit and produce an episode I have run out of steam, run out of energy, run out of time. So I greatly apologize for the inconsistency of the show lately, but it is coming back in full steam. I have a number of amazing interviews already on the books that just need to be produced and put out there. Well, today on Suncast, we welcome our first European to the show. Mr. Pablo Astorga and I have known each other for about six years, and in that time, Pablo has risen up the ranks at ABB, where he is now the global leader of microgrids. Pablo was involved in some of the earliest CNI projects in Mexico, helping ABB with their pilot PV projects on their Mexico campus. He and I discussed the definition of microgrid and the distributed generation uh, era that we are in. I asked Pablo to share with us some of what he's forecasting for the global microgrid market. And we discussed some numbers coming from various research institutions on that topic. In particular, the opportunity for renewable microgrids to displace much of the $16 billion generator market, much of which is currently diesel generators. 
We talk about how to weather the ups and downs of project development cycles that can stretch out as far as two to three years. And even Bill Gates gets a mention as we discuss a bit about the Breakthrough Energy Coalition, how important it is that these that they are keying in on making renewable energy profitable and that these titans of tech are weighing in on this very important topic finally. I'm glad you're here with us because you're in for another treat. Enjoy this week's episode of Suncast with Pablo Astorga. Well, it is my great pleasure to have my friend and colleague, Pablo Astorga, on the show today. Pablo and I have known each other for a number of years. And as I've been launching Suncast, he and I have actually had several conversations about the nature of the podcast and the nature of how it impacts us as participators in the market in general. And I decided it'd be a good chance to have Pablo come on to share from his broad experience and have him discuss a little bit about uh, what his view is on the market coming from a very large company. Pablo is the global sales manager for microgrids at a little company called ABB. He's responsible for global microgrid sales, helping basically bridge the integration gap between renewable energy and existing fossil fuel-based generation. Pablo has nearly a decade of international experience in renewables, joining ABB back in 2006 in Spain. He's a polyglot, speaks five languages, three at least fluently, and has lived and worked in both Europe and most recently in the U.S. during the PV boom in both markets. Pablo is now stationed back in Madrid, and I have the great pleasure of hosting him today on Suncast. Pablo, thank you so much, my friend, for joining. You ready to get down to business? Absolutely, and thanks for having me, Nico. My great pleasure, friend. So you have the distinction of being the first European on the show. Congratulations. Thank you. I was, yeah, man. I've I've been saying I got to get a I got to get a Spaniard on the show. We've had a bunch of uh, Tijuanenses and uh, and uh, other folks that are going to come on that are in in Mexico and Central America and certainly a number of North Americans. But I'm glad to finally get a European on the show. Thanks for joining. Thank you. I'm excited too. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So we've known each other for quite a while, man. Do you? I'm wondering. Do you remember the first time that we actually uh, made a connection? We spoke. I think I do. And and if I'm not mistaken, that must have been back in. 2011, maybe 2010, 2011, I, I remember I was looking at a potential rooftop PV installation for an ABB facility in North Carolina, and I was looking for a little bit of a different solution in terms of uh, modules. And, and if I'm not mistaken, you were back with Lumeta back then, so I reached out to the company because I thought That's they right. had some kind of innovative product. And uh, if again, if I'm not mistaken, I think I even filled a form online and then, you know, this guy, Nico, contacted me following up, uh, you know, to see how we could work together. And again, <laughs> that was probably, what, four or five years ago, I guess? Oh, yeah, it was back in 2010. That's a great memory, man. Um, and it makes you one of uh, one of my oldest colleagues and friends in the industry. So uh, it's fun to see these things come full circle, you know, as we both grown in our careers. Absolutely. ABB is, is one of the companies who's really been leading the charge in the microgrid arena globally. And Frankly, we've talked a lot on Suncast about medium and large scale projects. And I would dare say that most people think about uh, about microgrids 
as small, right? Because the word micro would imply and somehow somehow that they're small. Perhaps before we jump into the why and how of what you do, would you mind, let's just discuss the topic of what exactly is a microgrid. Is it a specific size, location, architecture? Help me understand what, what it is that you consider microgrid and if that in fact differs from some other definitions. Um, sure. So uh, I, there's several definitions out there, not by me and not by you know, the company I work for, but but by institutions such as the U.S. Department of Energy and IEEE and SIGRI. And, and they're slightly different, but they're basically the same. And, you know, we could all phrase it in a different way. But basically, a microgrid is a group of uh, generation assets and also loads uh, and some other elements, which some people call distributed energy, distributed energy resources. So think about batteries or fuels of elements of that nature. And the idea is that you have all these elements uh, operating in a, in a coordinated manner, in a controlled way. They can be uh, either connected to the main grid or they can be off-grid and, and isolated and remote, but you can still manage them as a, as a single entity, which is why it's called a microgrid, because it's basically a, a smaller version of the main grid. And you know nobody says how big or how small it can be, so there's basically no limit in the definition. It can be, you know, anywhere in the world, in Antarctica, there's projects, there's also projects in the desert, so there's no no real limitation other than what I just said, you know, a number of generation assets, fossil fuel-based and also renewables, and then loads that are being served by those uh, generation assets, and then, you know, some other elements in between, such as batteries, et cetera. Got it. So it's basically a grid as we understand it today, which is central generation with loads pulling off of that generation uh, asset. But it's somewhere where it's fully self-sufficient. Is that correct? Correct. It can be. It can still be grid connected and, and it can operate in, in conjunction with the main grid. But it, it it would have the ability to disconnect if something uh, happens, right? So imagine there's a, a problem at a distribution line in you know in the main grid, and you won't still be able to operate, then you can disconnect from the grid. And because you have generation, you have loads, you can continue to operate in an independent manner. So the, the essential element here is that you can control that that collection of elements in, in an independent manner. But yeah, absolutely. You can, you can uh, uh, you know, treat it as a smaller grid in a way because it has all the different elements and characteristics, except you're not talking about centralized generation, you're talking about distributed generation. And that's where renewables play a key role here in, in microgrids. I'm going to dig a little deeper on on that because you use the word distributed generation. And I never I'll never forget having a conversation with a friend of mine who predominantly sells into the utility generation space, fossil fuel generation, and the utility sort of lexicon around distributed generation is quite different from like a PV solar developer, right? Where we would say, oh, DG distributed gen is on rooftops or it's, you know, host sided uh, or customer sided generation that is not a part of the call it the the typical infrastructure architecture but microgrid distributed generation is being deployed in many different aspects right and i'm curious where and how you see it being deployed most often and how it all ties back to renewables at large so as you answer the question maybe circle back around to whether you feel like this is the natural evolution of renewables and PV, or if it's an aberration, this is something that is a stopgap between the development of truly distributed generation that's tied back to central nodes, or, or how do you see this all playing out? Well, it, it's certainly, I don't think it's an aberration. I think it's more, uh, I think they're complementary, right? So um, it's very interesting what you mentioned about what different people understand as distributed generation. So a residential solar developer might think of distributed generation as 
you know, four, six, eight kilowatts on a roof. But obviously a utility might think of distributed generation as a 20 megawatt grid connected utility scale uh, PV plant. And that those are two very different uh, uh, types of projects, but but in, or, or or they could be thinking of a capacitor or a transformer that's not that's not in the center node. True, true, exactly. Or, or batteries that are helping uh, provide some stability in the grid. So there's a lot of different things that could be uh, covered under that umbrella of distributed generation. I think that the the key here is that some technologies, and I think solar PV is is really the leading example there, use the same um, technology really for no matter what what example you use out of these, right? So to put solar on your roof, you use a PV panel that is essentially the same that you would use to put a, a 20 or 25 megawatt plant in the middle of the desert. So the technology is the same. It's what you want to do with it that you then use to to define one project versus the other. And microgrids is, in a way, benefiting from what solar, and this is how it ties in, and that's why I don't think it's an aberration, but it's really a natural evolution. Um, microgrids have existed for a long time, they were just maybe just based on diesel, right? So a remote location uh, that was, you know, having generation based on, for instance, diesel or heavy fuel oil or any other kind of fossil fuel. Um, uh, and that was serving some loads, whether it's an industry or a remote community or a military facility, whatever the case might be. That was a microgrid in essence, right? The, what has happened over the last several years is that because uh, renewables and particularly solar and wind have uh, seen that dramatic cost decrease, then many places where the only option was diesel or heavy fuel oil now can reduce that cost of electricity by using renewables, and particularly, I think, solar and wind. So uh, this, this is how it ties back together and probably how I ended up working in microgrids given my solar background, right? So now you have these technologies that we have deployed at large scale and continue to deploy at large scale out in the market, primarily connected to the grid. Now we can use those connected to that smaller grid out in the middle of nowhere if, this is a, if these are remote and off-grid systems. Or, like for instance, in the U.S. East Coast, um, also connected to the grid to, to provide some additional resiliency to the grid in the, in the event of hurricanes and, and so on. So I think it's, it's not an aberration. It's a really um, a natural evolution, but doesn't mean we're going to see microgrids everywhere. I think they're, they're very useful. In, uh, in many contexts, particularly in remote locations, off-grid locations, and in certain cases, it also in, in grid-connected mode, like, like I just mentioned on the U.S. East Coast. Got it. Hey, before I forget, uh, I meant to ask you about some of the earlier stuff that you were involved with at ABB. I mean, you didn't always start out in, in microgrids, and I recall you were involved in a few major early projects in ABB that in their own right, were, were leading photovoltaic projects, but they were also leaders in the Latin America region as well. Can you tell me a bit about how those early projects led you into doing business, not only in solar, but also in Latin America? Sure. And actually, it's funny that you think uh, I started with PV because I didn't really. I mean, uh, to make things a little bit more complicated, I guess I'm, I'm a telecommunications engineer by trade, so I'm not even an electrical engineer. I, I do have knowledge <laughs> about electrical engineering, and I'm an engineer, but I, I really started in the telecoms industry. And then... Um, I, I think I should say randomly ended up at ABB doing automation for any kind of power generation. And then solar started to come with, you know, with a lot of strength in, in Spain and in the rest of Europe. So I started actually with, uh, solar, uh, but in a different fashion, CSP concentrated solar power. Those, if you remember those large parabolic traps on the power towers, and, oh, yeah. you know, did, did that complex uh, element of automating those systems. And, you know, there was a lot of uh, critical 
processes there that were you know were in need of, of highly automated systems. So I started with that and then did a lot of projects in, in Europe, also in Northern Africa, and then also in the US. And then at some point, I think that was good because it gave me perspective of people say solar, and then back then there were so many different types of solar, but you could clearly see at some point in time the complexity of some types of solar and the simplicity of the other type of solar, the main one, right, PV. And so that gave me good perspective into, okay, this is, you know, PV is really simple, it's scalable, it's modular, it's really the winning the winning technology. So I, so to say, pivoted into that. Um, at, you know, at some point, also like you introduced earlier, I uh, relocated to the U.S. after we executed a project there um, in, in Florida for the main utility there and then started developing the market in the Americas. I, I've extensively uh, participated in projects in Mexico and Chile. I've uh, been exposed to some other activity in Colombia as well. So there's uh, a little bit here and there. Certainly most of it uh, focused around PV. At some point even also I did have some experience about CPV, concentrating PV. So a lot of, you know, a lot of solar, different types of solar. And, uh, you know, starting out of Europe where we had these uh, initiatives to, to grow the market and then expanding to North America. And then subsequently, I think that's also as a natural evolution, also probably because of my knowledge of Spanish, as I am Spanish, um, that allowed me to, to progress into the Latin American market in a way. Very interesting. So I'm going to come back around to the, the conversation with regards to the microgrid uh, data and, and market size, if we can. I am really interested to understand how large the microgrid market is now and how large you think it's going to grow. And if you could speak specifically to where a company like ABB or your team in particular gets your data from, that would be helpful. That's a, that's a tricky question because, you know, like I always say, not always, but I oftentimes say microgrids is now what solar was, say, 10 or nine years ago, right? So it's a new market, a lot of dynamism, a lot of uh, uh, fragmentation, a lot of volatility, things going up and down and a lot of high expectations at the same time, a lot of lack of clarity. So, you know, data is very valuable and very precious. And, you know, if I look at market data, I can do this in a couple of different ways, right? So I can look at what we have done ourselves because we do have quite some uh, extensive uh, list of projects that we've executed. But I also obviously look for market research companies. And it's very interesting to see that there's a huge difference between what company A says and what company B says in terms of market size today, in terms of market size tomorrow. Even the, the uh, you know, the, the bands that you get for, you know, the pessimistic scenario and the optimistic scenario are really big. I mean, sometimes they're even like 100% uh, uh, yeah. wide, right? So, uh, there's no such thing as an agreed upon figure that says today the market market is so big, right? I mean, there's figures out there, uh, and and it also comes down to definition. Like I said, there's microgrids that have been out there for a long time, maybe just diesel with some loads, right? And that's uh, that's a microgrid. It's certainly quite different from a PV diesel battery microgrid that we would deploy today, right? Uh, in terms of level of complexity, in terms of the drivers, in terms of the available options, and so on. So, uh, I mean, long story short, the the market is is uh, uh, you know uh, the the one thing that everybody agrees is that there's huge growth, right? So, there's unexpected about 80 watts or so by the end of 2020 by one uh, research company out there. Some other companies. Sorry, was have, that was was that eight gigawatts? Yes. Okay. Operating capacity by the end of 2020. That's coming out of one of the 
leading research companies. Some others have a, a smaller figure. Some others have a slightly higher figure. So there's a little bit of discrepancy there. But in essence, what everybody agrees uh, with is that there's huge growth. Right now, you have a huge installed base of uh, diesel generation that can, uh, let me say, easily replaced uh, by renewables, or at least partially. Uh, I mean, think about the, the diesel generator market. The generator market itself is a $16 billion market, right? That's a huge market. And it, mm-hmm. it keeps growing, right? And most of that is diesel. So um, we might think in some countries we can now replace diesel with solar or wind. In some countries uh, where there's no electricity, diesel is still a growing opportunity for electricity, right? So the, the idea here is how do we allow people to have access to electricity or to more sustainable electricity without really stopping their prospects for growth. So there's a huge, tremendous opportunity, uh, but still a lot of discrepancy in terms of figures and market size. It will come down, I think, over the next year, year and a half, there will be uh, more of an agreement in terms of, you know, what do we count as a microgrid? Uh, how do we expect growth? For now, it's huge growth, a little bit of, you know, the far west, uh, but certainly some discrepancies in terms of market size. I appreciate that color. I mean, what I heard you say was, there are lots of different ways to to slice it, and it depends on where you lean for information. But if you look at the research, we're talking about somewhere on the order of a quarter to roughly half of, you know, to, just to give a parameter, the U.S. market in 2015 ha- is going to reach about 25 gigawatts, a little over 25 total installed capacity, right? Other markets globally have have more than that, but uh, it sounds like over the next five years or or so, we expect that the microgrid market will be, you know, roughly a quarter to a half of what the current install capacity in the U.S. is. So the the, the current, just to uh, provide some clarity here, so the the expectation is that by in the next five years, the total operating capacity globally would be around eight gigawatts, including the U.S. and other regions. What what makes it difficult today to estimate is that number one. You know, there's very different types of microgrids in different parts of the world. So, yeah. you know, a grid-connected microgrid in the U.S. East Coast that is connected to, you know, the utility is very different from a very remote location in, uh, in an Australian desert or in an African country, right? Very different concepts, very different problems that you're trying to solve with that microgrid. And also uh, to, to be kept in mind is also the fact that there's much more available information, as you can imagine, about microgrids and any other kind of system in the U.S. than, you know, we would have in Southeast Asia or in Africa. Sometimes it's difficult to access to the, that information based on, you know, the language that is written, whether it's on the Internet or not. Um, you know, the transparency of, of the, uh, the local utilities or other organizations. So uh, there's much more information and data about, say, the U.S., uh, but there's also a lot of opportunities and a lot of existing projects outside the U.S. that represent you know, a huge part of the business. Uh, so, you know, about 8 gigawatts is what uh, some companies say by 2020. Mm-hmm. But in, like I said, in, in addition to that, you know, there's new places that are now having access to electricity, maybe with diesel or any other kinds of fossil fuel generation. So there's an increased opportunity there to display some of that fuel with renewables in the future. Does that help? Absolutely. It's very interesting. You know, I'm, I'm curious from a, from the perspective of, I mean, ABB, generally speaking, is a product company, right? Not a project development company. So from the perspective of a product focus in the market, how do you 
I take that that information and through the lens of understanding where the regions are, are seeing growth, how do you forecast? I'm I'm curious. I mean, when I was at Trina, this was a, a difficult question for for a pretty you know plain vanilla straightforward one product, and you you offer a plethora of products, perhaps a system, in fact. So could you give me some insight into that? How how if I'm in your shoes, do I look at choosing the right region and forecasting where I should be allocating resources? Right. That's a really good question. I mean, it's very, very difficult to forecast when you're not always in control. So in essence, what I what I tell my team is we, we even though we're not a developer, as you rightly pointed out, we're, we're a technology company and an engineering company, and, and we not only sell products, but also systems, which are, you know, a little bit more complex, I would say. Um, we, in essence, need to, in a way, become a developer in the sense that we need to talk to the end user, right? So as an example, if there is a mine or you know a cement uh, factory or whatever in a remote location and they're burning diesel and there's an opportunity for uh, cost reduction or increased uh, fuel independence or you know more sustainable way of uh, generating power locally we need to very often most of the times i would say in today's world we need to talk to that end user and generate that demand right and convince them that this is a good business case this is not so to say avbs job really this should be the developer but because on the one hand we have the technology and the understanding of what needs to be done and we end up talking to that end user and then we'll have to close that gap between what they need maybe a power purchase agreement or an epc or some other kind of agreement and, and what we have to offer we'll need a, someone to help us in between a developer an epc or any other kind of partner but also because you know one of the benefits of working for such a large corporation is we have a lot of people not infinite number of people, but we have a lot of people out there, right? So oftentimes the person going to that factory selling a motor or a drive or a transformer or something like that, they can have access to, you know, uh, some of the concerns or the comments that the, the plant manager will have. So then I, as ABB, have an opportunity to generate that demand uh, for a microgrid. But that means that I need to be able to to become a developer myself so that I can explain what you know, what the business case looks like, what financing could look like, what the the whole project development timeline looks like. I mean, mm-hmm. I, in essence, I have to become a developer, generate their interest. And once that end user, not my customer, but the end user is on board, then I'll need someone to help me with that PPA if, if there's a PPA that's needed or that EPC contract or whatever the case right. may be. I'm really curious. I'm actually curious to, to drill drill down a little bit there on the the cross selling of ABB product lines. And certainly, you know, I remember when I was doing EPC, I was working for a company that is a roofing company, and it was very difficult to convince the guys who made a living every day building relationships with building owners uh, and, and re-roofing for them, you know, every five years or ten years. It was hard to convince them to hand over the keys to that uh, relationship, right? So, how have you been able to focus your efforts, and perhaps you know, what what have you created in terms of uh, systems internally, just to help the ABB family understand where they can insert your product line or your systems? Well, you know, there's a number of ways to answer that, but. Uh you know, this is a, luckily for me, this is a CEO-driven initiative, right? So there's a whole program across the company to, so to say, educate the rest of the company and do mm. uh, some leverage of, of, you know, what we're doing to make sure we can do that cross-selling. So you always need that support from top management so that you can really uh, convince the rest of the, I don't know, 100, I don't know how many thousand employees 
that this is something else they can bring to their customers, right? And likewise, there's a lot of things that I, I should learn from the other groups within the company so that I, when I go out there trying to sell a microgrid and, and maybe there is or there isn't an opportunity for that, I can spot whether there's an opportunity for something else that the rest of the company is doing. So there's a lot of education internally. I spend, you know, quite a considerable amount of time educating not only externally the market, but also internally all the other mm-hmm. stakeholders. I imagine. But yeah. also there's this need for support coming from from the top so that you know you can always connect to to the right people in the right region in the right country in the right division or or business unit right because it's not it's it's complex can you tell me perhaps about a project that really stretched your team and you had to be resourceful to pull that project off perhaps there was some cross-selling but you really to close that deal uh it was outside of the parameters of what you'd been trained for Oh yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure I have a couple of examples. Um, not not only in microgrids, I mean, even in, in my past life in, in solar, um, I remember. I guess I remember a couple of examples in, in particular. One in a solar project in the Southwest US, uh, where you know we were not developer and we have never been, and, and but the, the complexity of the deal was really. Um, really high and, and to my point before about you know me having to pretty much become a developer I had to understand the incentives and how those work and what the timelines were with the uh, different entities environmental permits I remember us having to you know hire a uh, biologist to walk the whole site 150 acres to pick up all the turtles because they were protected species in that desert so that has an impact on your schedule and your timeline. We had to, you know, that was a time when PV module prices were declining by the week or by the month. So, you know, you could see how the developer, one of the leading developers in the world would probably wait, you know, one month and then another month because then they would get probably better pricing on the module side. So that had an impact on our scope. At the same time, this was a, a project that would had started with a, a developer that was then acquired by the developer that I was working with. And then in, in that whole process, that developer oh, wow. was subsequently acquired, right? And that by another company, right? And then, you know, uh, there's one of the leading developers in the world. So it's very complex. I mean, when you, when project when the project development cycle spans over one or two years, probably closer to two years, uh, so many things can happen on the, you know, in the market competition. Um, uh, like I said, environmental part of the project, incentives, uh, political things like unions having to, you know, uh, to be appeased that they will be part of the project. So Lindra bankruptcy came into the picture, right? And all of a sudden PV oh, was man. tainted. So uh, that was a little bit of a complex uh, project, but we ended up, you know, being able to to pull it off and, and make it happen. So that I do remember. So that goes back to the point of, you know, no matter what you sell, you can be selling, a, you know, a, a product at the very end of the chain, or you can be the developer and, and, you know, on the front line. But you need to understand the end user need. You need to understand the development of a project, not only just your scope of whether you sell a transformer or a PV panel or whatever it is. Because otherwise, you can very easily get lost. You can lose that uh, forecasting ability that you were referring to before. And, and you know, it's very, very easy to to get lost. So that, that I, you know, that was in the US. I mean, imagine now moving into Mexico, uh, maybe not always clarity around the rules and the thresholds for, you know, which project need to be reported into CRE or, you know, with CFE. So it's, it's it just made it more complicated. And then there's these other things about the dynamics of your own business, right? Which over one or two years could change. So you can maybe tweak your business model and maybe what you were willing to do two years ago is not exactly what you are really wanting to do today. So you need to tweak that while keeping your customers happy because you you had committed to something. So I, I do have a couple of yeah experiences in 
in the U.S. and in Latin America, in the Caribbean. Uh, I remember particularly a, a large PV project on, on a Caribbean island that is now actually being built. But but I started getting involved in that project three years ago, and now we're getting some returns, right? So, uh, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. The ability to see the end of the deal and see a deal through uh, in, a, in a market where people move around from company to company and, and companies get acquired and companies go out of business makes it extremely difficult. Uh, back to the forecasting question about even knowing when you're going to see the revenue from all of the effort. And it's something that, frankly, you know, brings many project development companies to a stalemate uh, and, and leads to, to projects being abandoned or, or put on hold for quite a time. You know, I am, I would say, limited in scope, and the podcast certainly is directed towards the Latin America region, and I think that probably the Caribbean is the, arguably the largest market for pure, pure and simple what we think of as a microgrid, despite the fact that in North America there are going to be large rollouts of grid-connected microgrid applications, New York and California as leading examples. Where have you seen other regions that might have benchmarks or, or good learning lessons that we might look at for applying to the Caribbean and Latin America. Can you think of a, a couple of examples where there are other regions that a young developer salesperson might say, hey, you know, wonder what's going on over there and how it might apply to my region? Yeah, I mean, I think the key here is you need to look at what are the fundamentals of what you're trying to solve, right? So who is your end customer? Is it, is it an island utility who is running a microgrid? Is it a cement factory? Is it a mine? Is it, you know, is it a military facility? Is it a research institution? What is the end user that you're trying to solve a problem for? And then what is their problem, right? And based on that, then you go and look around and see, okay, where can I learn, right? So you mentioned North America, U.S., grid-connected microgrids, but let's not forget about remote communities in, in Canada and in Alaska, right? So those are also running on diesel. So if you are trying to solve that problem of electricity cost based on diesel mm. or, uh, you know, uh, fuel independence, then you can you don't have to go to remote Australia. You can look up in the north, right, and and, and try to find uh, examples in in uh, in Alaska or in, in Canada where these things have already been deployed. If you are trying to solve, if you have a very unstable grid and, you know, you're running a factory with a critical process, but you cannot rely on the grid because you get outages every now and then. And, you know, if you lose power for, let's say, five seconds, then you, you lose production for four hours because you need to, you know, throw out your whole batch of whatever it was, baby food or whatever. Then you have a different problem, right? You're talking about power quality and power quality can be solved also with a microgrid with seamless transition from grid connected to off-grid mode. And then you would maybe look at Africa because there's a lot of unreliable grids in Africa. And there's examples that we are building today uh, where we are solving that problem. So I don't think there's just one region to look at. It really depends on, on what you're trying to solve. And, you know, a lot of, like you said, you know, a lot of uh, remote communities in, in Australia, a lot of islands in, in the Pacific uh, you know, Southeast Asia has a huge potential also for, for smaller islands. I mean, Philippines alone and, and Indonesia alone have thousands of islands, right, that, that are most of them run by, by diesel. But if you're trying to solve something else, then you might just look at India or, or Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa primarily. If you're looking at great market microgrids, maybe the rest of the world uh, will learn from the U.S. East Coast or California where some of these projects are happening. And if you look at islands with high penetration and a, and a uh, somewhat stable grid, then you can look at Hawaii. So I think there's a lot of examples out there just because the market is not just 
one type of market. There's all these different markets with all these different end users, with all these different drivers and all these different problems to be solved by a microgrid, essentially with the same technology. Yeah, what I hear you saying is it's no surprise why the CEO at the highest levels of ABB is saying we have to have and roll out a microgrid solution and train the train the the market in general on the level of systems thinking required and if effectively you know the question i asked earlier is this a natural evolution it sounds to me like there are uh, there's so much application especially for the emerging world where i particularly have a passion you know latin america and the caribbean is just a small portion of that where a number of these island or remote nations depend on the fossil fuel distribution chain, if you will, and and not only just generating from fossil fuels and all that goes along with that, but the the security risk involved in continually more in deploying these you know heavy fuel oil or diesel generation assets into remote regions. Uh, yeah, and and maybe just to add to that, Nico, the, the you know the other reason why this is the natural evolution um, is that think about us. Today, you know, we are sometimes uh, providing that additional fuel independence or reducing the cost of electricity by adding solar into, say, a Caribbean island with, with a small grid. But then as we add more and more solar, what are we doing? We are really creating some instability into that grid, right? And how do we stabilize that, right. that small island grid? Well, maybe by, by uh, running it as a microgrid and making sure that all the elements are coordinated and controlled. Maybe we need batteries. Maybe we just need a good automation system. It depends on the penetration level. And then you can just simply look at some of the Spanish islands or the Portuguese islands in the Azores, which have done this, you know, for the last decade or so. So again, you know, we need to look at what is the fundamental problem that we're facing and then how do we solve it? And then we look around and it might be that we'll look into Portuguese projects or into Australian projects or uh, Canadian projects, who knows? Always bringing it back home to the Iberian Peninsula. I love it, Pablo. Of course. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm going to switch to a segment we call Learning, Leadership, and Legacy. Any news in particular that's grabbed your attention or is worthy of discussion, especially as it pertains to, ha- to what might be impacting our market for PV? Yeah, I mean, I, I liked, there's so many news out there, right? And there's good news coming out every day. Uh, it's really difficult to pick one, but I, I was really encouraged by the recent annou- announcement by Bill Gates and, and some others about these, what they call these mm. breakthrough energy coalition. And there's a number of reasons why I thought that was very interesting. One is because I could be wrong, but I, I had not yet felt in Bill Gates the passion for clean energy that he had shown for other things, you know, like philanthropy and, and you know, health and, and so on, right? So it seems to me like he's putting more and more effort into clean energy. And, you know, if he could only achieve with clean energy what he has been able to achieve with philanthropy or health, access to healthcare or anything like that, then it, that will be just mind-blowing and, you know, life-changing for so many people around the world. So to me, that, that was very interesting. Uh, but also because, if I remember correctly, the, that statement, which, again, had so many people on board, you know, from uh, Bani in India to Jeff Bezos, I believe, and, and so many others, um, it was mm-hmm. talking about how key it is to make this profitable, right? So um, I, I, I get tired so often of, you know, hearing naysayers say, oh, but there's so many incentives for renewables and, you know, incentives have been out there for any, any kind of technology that, you know, was growing, right? So what's important Precisely. here is that we make this profitable 
on, on its own merit with no incentives here, no incentives there, which is indeed happening in many of these cases where fuel is expensive to ship and expensive to store and just, you know, just not cutting it. Uh, you're at the mercy of the markets or at the mercy of what's going on in terms of ge geopolitical situations here and there. So the, the fact that we can make this in a profitable way, to me, that, that was also very encouraging. And to have Bill Gates behind that, that was very, very uh Helpful and also, you know, in the very title, I think they call it breakthrough energy coalition, right? So, I think we're getting to a point to which incremental improvements are good and always welcome. But I'm confident that at some point there will be some breakthrough, right? Someone will invent something, new technology that will be disruptive, and then that will give us another uh, huge leap forward, very much like say PV was and its decline, you know, a couple of years ago, declining cost. I mean. Yeah, and and also, you know, speaking of uh, the natural evolution, and uh, I really appreciate your your um, your thoughts on that from a news perspective. Um, I, I think that not only what Gates and Zuckerberg and others of the Breakthrough Energy Coalition are accomplishing, but the commitment of all of the countries that arrived at COP to to a new standard uh, for energy generation globally moving forward, right? And it's, it's not a signed legal commitment yet, but we all are hopeful. And I'm actually going to be doing a show specifically on COP21 uh, with some friends of mine from DC. So be on the lookout for that one. But I was particularly moved. And I don't know if you've listened to or watched it, but Elon Musk gave a speech at COP21. And I would encourage you to go just search Elon Musk COP21 speech and you'll find, uh, I mean, I, I read on the auto blog about it and 7,000 word uh, speech. So not going to go into the details here, but, you know, he's pushing for uh, a revenue neutral carbon tax. And it's, it's so interesting that the entire auto ener energy infrastructure uh, we built shifted away from electricity because there wasn't an electricity infrastructure that would support long, long haul uh, movement. Right. And now as we are deploying more renewable resources and have a more global focus on less fossil fuel generation, we're going to we're seeing a shift back towards electric locomotion. Right. I think it's a I think it's a beautiful evolution as well of our industry and of uh, great leaders and thinkers like Elon Musk and and Bill Gates to to invest in and spur those on. Absolutely. And, and also, I, I think you mentioned something that's really important. You, you said this is not a legal binding agreement, you know, so what? I mean, uh, I think California hit its uh, renewable energy goals way before it had to, right? So it was not about just sticking to what law said. And, you know, when these Caribbean island or that remote community in, in you know, anywhere in the world is switching to renewables or adding renewables, maybe not going 100% renewables, but adding sufficient renewables to, to become more sustainable and to have a lower cost of electricity, that's not because the law says so, right? There's not a bill that was passed imposing that on them. It's just because it makes sense. So the, that's why where I was going with that comment about profitability. We need to be able to, and we are already starting to, to do this, we need to be able to uh, turn this into something that just makes sense, financial sense, logistical mm. sense, whatever it is that your driver is. Maybe, like I said, it's power quality. Maybe it's just becoming energy independent. Maybe it's just reducing your electric, uh, electricity bill, right? So whatever it is. You need to be motivated, so you just do it because you want to, because it makes sense, not just because there was a bill passed in Congress that forces you to do so. And when we achieve that, mm. which we are starting to achieve in, in some places, 
then nobody will care about whether it's, you know, there's a quota here and a goal there because it will just make sense and we'll just do it because we want to. And then the growth, then it will be absolutely exponential. I love it. Well, I know that we have a lot in common um, in regards to where we go for, for information. So, but I'm hoping that you can bring something fresh to the to the podcast here today. I'm curious what's on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rephrase this question so that I am more specific. But what's on your nightstand? What books are you reading that are really feeding you today? And then on the back uh, on the back side of that, not just books, but are there particular blogs or different tools that you use that shape how you um, how you work and how you understand the market. So you know that you are touching the right buttons, huh? I know that you know that because we've <laughs> talked about this. So, um, you know, I could talk and talk for hours, so we're, I'm not going to do that. But, you know, in terms of books, I, I love reading. Um, but one thing I generally don't do is I don't read about energy books. I mean, right, I don't read books about energy or solar or whatever. I like reading about history or, you know, economics or whatever it is, just because I think mm -hmm. it gives me a different perspective. And uh, it just, I think it provides a different view on some of the same problems. I mean, just by reading the classics, sometimes the same lessons can be learned and can be applied yeah. to what we're trying to do here, right? Um, there are some books that I, not necessarily related to, to energy, but that I use or some resources that I use, particularly when I travel, which I do a lot. So, you know, there's a, a book, a good book called uh, uh, When Cultures Collide. I don't know if you've heard about it, uh, which talks about the different, the culture differences when, you know, between countries and things that are acceptable and not. So that helps sometimes uh, understand what you're going to see and face uh, when you cross the border, you know, and enter a total different country from Indonesia to Chile to the U.S. to, you know, South Africa. Uh, something that I also typically do the night before I go some new place, I, I like reading, it's a very simple thing, but I like reading uh, the Wikipedia article about that country. It teaches you mm. a little bit about, you know, the history of that country, the background, you know, uh, their industry, et cetera, et cetera. It just gives you some good perspective and also, uh, you know, some uh, background on, on what how people think, why they think, so where they're coming from and, and what they're looking for. And then, you know, in terms of blogs and newsletters, I mean, there's so many, I couldn't just summarize them. I, I, I have them on my feed list, so that's, that takes care of it. And then I go read them whenever I have time, you know, and then, uh, you know, podcasts, I certainly follow you and the Energy Gang and Planet Money from NPR, which is really good for non-energy related and, and financial aspects. I mean, there's so many things. Uh, right. that help me stay tuned. And sometimes it's just about thinking about something different, right? So um, like yourself, I use a lot of different apps here and there, you know, to stay fit and, and, and run and then, you know, think about things and clear my mind and become more mindful, like Headspace and Fitbit and Elevate mm -hmm. and all those. Those are great tools to just disconnect, uh, reset, and then have more clarity. And then it's a better way to start next day or, you know, next week or whatever it yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I really appreciate you bringing it back to that as well. One of the, one of the things that we often talk about when we get together are the different apps on our phones. And then what I, I share with you the last time we met that you're the only friend I have whose playlists on Spotify I routinely follow and listen to. <laughs> and it's probably, <laughs> probably because we have the toddler age children and we're both listening to, uh, to what, whatever, uh, is the newest thing there. But I also, uh, am a runtastic user because of our conversations and Indomondo and, and we go through 
those kind of those iterations of how to of how to sharpen one another. Now, I find it interesting that a number of uh, of the um, of the folks on the show, Edgar, uh, Arvisu, Camilo, Patrinani, yourself, and I, we're all we're all long distance runners. Um, so I, I think I might know the answer to this question, but I'm going to put it, put it out there and ask: What one thing do you con- do you do consistently that yields the greatest impact in your personal or professional life? Okay, so you, I mean, because you already know that answer, maybe I need to pick another one. But I mean, definitely uh, <laughs> aiming for strong, you know, personal professional balance is, is absolutely key. I mean, and then, you know, staying fit and doing your sport or whatever you like, reading, you know, sleeping, whatever it is, uh, that certainly helps a lot. So that's absolutely key. But even, even you know, if I try to stay, uh, you know, focused on, on work, there's a couple of things that I, you know, whenever I do them, I always get some good results, sometimes without noticing. And uh, you know, things that I can think of are, for instance, you know, not everything in life is black or white or, or quantifiable, but trying to quantify things and measure them uh, is really helpful. I mean, I, when I started using my Fitbit, I, just by knowing how much I was eating and how little I was walking, I just started tracking it. And then I lost, you know, I won't tell you how many pounds, right? So <laughs> by trying to track, you know, things, not to the to the smallest level detail, but you know, track how much time you spend in these type of projects or that type of projects or this country or that country or, you know, that might give you an insight that you can there, you know, thereafter analyze and maybe you take some conclusions. I do that. And whenever I do that, I come up with, you know, conclusions that I, I can think of uh, in advance. And and I think that, that that's valuable, uh, probably as valuable as one of the things that I try to do, which is, you know, put things in perspective. So, you know, we're all stressed and busy and, and all that, but if you put things in perspective or, you know, when you're running to a problem with a customer or a client or a supplier and you turn things around and, and try to say, okay, what, you know, what would that person say or do or what would I do or say if I was in their position? That typically gives good results. So I try to apply that to myself as well. So perspective and, you know, optimism, of course, is, is a key one. You won't go anywhere if you're not optimistic and, and positive. So, I don't know. There's so many things that that I could talk about uh, that are necessary. Uh, that that you know that I need to do consistently if I really want to achieve results. Absolutely. You know, one one thing that we haven't talked about on the show yet, but and I'll just tag on to some of the tools and books, and we share a lot of what books we're reading. And I want you, if you're listening to the show, to really be digging into books. I mean, it's one of the leading characteristics of good leaders is that they read consistently and, uh, and they read over a broad variety of topics, a book that many of my friends have been reading and I've been implementing some of the, uh, some of the applications of the book, although I haven't read the book. I've heard Hal Elrod uh, on a number of podcasts this year. He's just blown up and his book, the miracle morning really concisely packages uh, how to focus uh, your time in the morning to get the most impact out of your day. And I think the reason that I'm even willing to suggest that this book is worth your time is because I listened to an interview on Robert Kiyosaki's podcast where he interviewed Hal and he credited Hal for pulling him out of depression. And he said that, you know, as a billionaire, uh, he has, uh, he can go by or, or accomplish or do or have anything he wants in the world. And he was still depressed because he just felt like he had no meaning in his life. And he implemented the very simple, uh, savers, uh, acronym from, from the miracle morning. And he literally said that it saved his life. So we're all about injecting some wisdom and knowledge and life-saving tips here on Suncast. And I appreciate, uh, your adding to that as well. Pablo, 
Well, before we go, I want to uh, just give you a chance. How can folks find you? How they? How can they reach out and learn more about you and contact you if they want, if they'd like to do so? Uh, there's a couple of ways. Uh, a couple of ways to do that. So people can just reach out on or follow me on Twitter at Pablo Astorga underscore. So there's another Pablo Astorga in Chile. I have Gmail, and then he he got his you know Twitter account. So I'm Pablo Astorga underscore. <laughs> um, LinkedIn is a good good way as well. I know you like it a lot. The one thing I, I you know I think it's important about LinkedIn. You know we we get so many requests from people that we don't know. I I always appreciate when when someone invites me and then you know puts a message in there, right? Hey, I heard you on Suncast, or hey, we met at this solar show, and I really want to stay connected yeah. with you. That makes a real difference to me because that gosh, I'm s- that that's, there's already a connection there, right? I can relate. I can see where this person's yeah. coming from, and that makes a huge difference versus you know. Person X and country Y just you know willing to connect with no absolute background about yeah. it. So, man, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna give everyone here a little hack. You know how LinkedIn lately, especially like the last two years, and I'm a, Pablo and I talk about this. I'm a LinkedIn junkie, but if LinkedIn will suggest that you connect with someone, if you just click that connect button. It's just going to send a plain vanilla invitation to that person. And I would highly suggest that you don't do that. As a salesperson, that's a bad sign from a networking perspective. It's just a, it's just a, a hip shot, if you will. Try to connect it. And, th- and there's an interesting thing. If you look closer, it does give you the option to, to send a message to that person. Now, what's powerful about that page where LinkedIn just suggests new connections is that you don't have to have their email address. Whereas if you tried to connect with them from their profile page, you do. So just take a second there, look for the little down arrow, click on it, and, and input a personal message to that person, just as Pablo is, is uh, insinuating. And I guarantee your connections, uh, acceptances within LinkedIn will go up. Um, so Pablo, I appreciate that. And we're going to end today with, as usual, a bold prediction. Pablo, what one thing do you see happening in the market that probably nobody else is tracking? What do you see in your crystal ball? Well, I ain't no crystal ball, but uh, I did like a lot uh, something that Camilo said in one of the previous shows about you know solar energy being free. But I, I'm not going to borrow that today. That was really really nice. <laughs> um, you know, one thing that I really hope that happens is that you know we've seen uh, you know Uber and Airbnb and all these you know new uh, uh, businesses or maybe not so new anymore. I I'm really willing to predict that in the next you know, I don't know, five to seven years, someone will invent the Uber of renewable energy. Because today, you can put solar on your roof, you know, and you can consume it or sell it to the utility if you have metering, whatever, you know, whatever it is. But we cannot really transact with each other. I can use my car today to, you know, become an Uber driver, or I can, uh, you know, be a customer of, of, of Uber and, and be driven by someone else. I can, you know, do the same thing with Airbnb. But uh, at least to my knowledge, there's no way that we can transact with each other with renewable energy. And so I'm really hoping that someone uh, smarter than me can really invent a way uh, to to get out there an Uber of renewable energy so that we can you know benefit from that sharing economy, but also in renewables. And maybe it's out there. And if it's out there, please you know send me an email, LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever it is, and I will definitely want to, to look into it. But I, I don't think there's anybody out there that is as powerful as Uber has become in transportation and as Airbnb has become in hospitality. So that's my prediction. That's a great prediction. And if, it, if, if that should come to pass, rest assured, ABB will find a way to meter, control, switch, or exchange that energy for you and on your behalf. Absolutely. And if, in fact, it does come to pass, 
Rest assured, you'll hear about it here on Suncast. Well, folks, that's a wrap with our friend Pablo Astorga. Pablo, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Nico. It was it was great. I mean, you know that I I do listen to all the episodes. They're absolutely great. I, I learn a lot, and it was an absolute honor and a pleasure to to be here today. So thanks a lot. Thanks, my friend. The pleasure is ours. Really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it a lot. Well, I am excited to see you're still here listening to today's conversation, my friend. I'm certain you are taking with you some wonderful tips on how to improve on your game in the coming week. There is a lot of misunderstanding about microgrids out there, and I'm thrilled my friend Pablo could stop by and help us bring clarity to this subject. I'll be dropping some of Pablo's wisdom on Twitter and LinkedIn as usual, so if you like the show, please retweet and share what you heard. And of course, make sure you're following me on Twitter at Nico Mayo, N-I-C-O-M-E-O. I hope you are really enjoying this show. Remember that if you subscribe in iTunes, you'll be automatically notified each time a new episode is released. It may even just automatically download to your iPhone. Similarly, you can join the mailing list over at www.mysuncast.com and you'll get an email from yours truly the morning a new episode is available. If you have a suggestion for someone you think should be featured on the show, I'd love to hear from you. Plenty of you have sent me over an email at nico at mysuncast.com asking for just that thing. Or you can tweet, or you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm always listening. Hey, one more thing before you go. We continue to hold regional meetings to refine the purpose for the Latin America and Caribbean Solar Alliance, and I welcome your input. We had a great luncheon of about 30 regional professionals during the GTM Summit in Mexico, and I am encouraged by the sharing of ideas and enthusiasm displayed there. Please join in the discussion. Go to www.laxa.org, that's L-A-C-S-A, to get on our mailing list and to join our LinkedIn group. In the coming weeks, we'll be posting much more information and launching country-specific subgroups of LAXA to help address more local concerns. Make your voice count. Head over to laxa.org and join the list today. That's it for this week, folks. Please tune in again next week for another episode of Suncast, and thanks for listening. Until next time, stay informed, my friend, and stay tuned.